that we need to, you know, bring back our masks for schools. So the bottom line is we're going to keep kids safe. We're going to keep our members safe. And we're going to try to open up schools and we're going to try to move through this political battlefield. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. Oh, you'll regret this and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to the Ruthless Variety Program. We are going to do something a little different today, which Randy Weingarten uh, led us into with that quote about a political minefield in our schools. Yeah, that might be a big clue of what we're going to cover. We've had a lot of folks who brought up a very interesting idea. Uh, You know, we have our shows where we tackle a few topics, but... The people have cried out for a deep dive. A and, deep dive. And, it, you know, it, it's the time of the year. What what better subject? That's exactly right. We've got a bunch of kids going back to school right now after Labor Day. And there's been, as anyone with any children understands, a lot of uh, anxiety over school boards, over whether your schools are open, whether they're teaching a critical race theory, whether they're making everybody wear, wear masks. Um, we thought a good place to start on our deep dives was the issue of school choice. Yeah. And so we're starting today's program. This is going to be a great one for those of you who like really want to get under the hood and listen to some experts as to what something like school choice would mean for you and your family. Look no further. We've got, uh, the American Federation for Children, here today, Tommy Schultz, who runs the joint, great guy. He's going to speak in depth about what his organization is doing to try to push school choice nationwide. They've had a lot of success. Uh, also with his Denisha Merriweather, who whose personal story is fantastic. She also works with Tommy in this effort. Really important cause. I'm really proud of this episode. I'm really proud of of the information that they've provided because I learned a lot in the process of, of taping this. Well, you, you cover so much news of the day and you tick through, you know, eight, 10 uh, subjects over the course of an hour. And so everybody just gets a little, little bit of something. And every once in a while, it's just nice to sort of sit back and get something a little more substantive. And, and the reason that the Randy quote off the top is so important is because what she talks about at the end there about navigating a political minefield is the exact reason why we need school choice. You need to take the issue of educating our children out of the political minefield. Bingo. It's so telling that she says that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with this episode, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot, folks. And I, if you're teaching smug, you're teaching anyone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I love say it. we get right into it. Let's do it. Okay, so we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to get into a big big discussion about an extremely important issue issue of school choice which we find deserves a lot more attention particularly at this point in time uh, i think covid has opened our eyes to the what happens when you have sort of government monopolies over the education system and uh how there's an awful lot of underserved communities who've been really hit hard 
by this. And we wanted to bring in two experts. Um, we got Tommy Schultz, CEO of American Federation for Children, and Denisha Merriweather, also with AFC, who, who runs a separate project within AFC called Black Minds Matter. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Listen, this is such an important issue, and I know, I mean, look, you guys dedicate your lives to it. So why don't I just turn it over and say, what is school choice? Explain to us why it's so important. Sure. I'll set the table just on the mechanics of it. So back in the early 90s, there was this push uh, to create a couple of different policy options that say, hey, rather than having, yes, 99% of kids just going to one government-owned, government-operated, single system, hey, just by your zip code, wherever you are, that's where you got to go. They said, let's create some options because we do have some massive disparities, both in terms of funding, both in terms of outcomes that said, hey, we got to create something that, you know, Milton uh, Friedman wrote about, school vouchers. That allows kids to go to a private school for free. Let's create kind of a hybrid in between that that is a still within the public system, uh, something called charter schools. So it's, yes, still fully funded, tuition-free uh, within the public system, but there's a little bit more lax oversight, lax rules that allow these schools to kind of try new curriculum, hire uh, different kind of teachers to do different styles of learning. So that was the initial phase of it from 1990. And so now, fast forward to today, we've got about 3.2 million kids in public charter schools in 44 states. Uh, On the private school choice side, there's been a few new mechanisms that got developed. So the traditional voucher, which, you know, it's a scholarship to go to a private school funded by the government. Another version came up called a tax credit scholarship, which Denisha is a recipient of one, uh, where you can just, let's say the the four of us here, we donate to a private school choice scholarship organization, you would get a tax credit from the state for that donation. That's one option. The new one that got created in 2011 in Arizona is kind of the more fully-fledged, customizable type of private school choice. So they call those education savings accounts in a lot of states, which is sort of a trick because that's uh, hard to explain to somebody who goes, oh, wait, it's like a, a college 529. No, it's actually different. And I say in more kind of left-leaning audiences, it's like the food stamps of education where you get a debit card that says you could spend this on textbooks, tuition, private school tutoring, uh, special needs therapies. It's kind of just more of this fully uh, customizable thing. So about 600,000 kids in America today are utilizing one of those options. So that's kind of what school choice is just at the policy level. This is all controlled by the state. It's not the federal government. It's not even, in most cases, really a local like school board issue. So that's what school choice is. And we feel, and I think I can quote Condi Rice, Tim Scott, that this really is the civil rights issue of our time. And so we've got some exciting initiatives to try and blow the doors off this in the coming years. Yeah, I want to hear those. I also want to hear about your background, Denisha. I, I know that this is a, a really personal issue to yeah. you. Yeah. You've grown up in it and it's obviously important to you. You're now spending your life doing it, right? <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah. And so um I, I guess my story is really like I guess in in it personifies what school choice is. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, in the inner city, in a community that's drug written a bunch of police presence and a bunch of people just walking around aimlessly without hope and without a job with nothing to do. And, um, I, when I was living with my biological mother from K to fifth grade, um, home life wasn't great. School life wasn't great. I went to about 
five to six different um, district schools, government schools. None really did um, any work to try to figure out who Denisha was and why is she struggling right. academically or personally. Right. Um, I would come into the classrooms in elementary school and the teachers would sigh like, oh, here she comes. Oh, my gosh. perceptive of you to pick up on that yeah right right? (laughs) I failed the third grade twice and um I thought I would end up like many of my the people in my family I would fail you know drop out of high school um I would probably end up working at a fast food restaurant um have a baby definitely as a teen Mm -hmm. uh these are things that were happening all the time and so when I The summer before my sixth grade year, I went to live with my godmother permanently. One of the first things she wanted to do was find a good school for me. And she couldn't afford it, but she found this private school. And so she was asking around and she found out about our state uh, tax credit scholarship program. She applied for it. I got on. And that's, that's when everything changed. It was huh. it was like night and day. And um, when I tell people my story, they're often you know kind of perplexed. Like that was the con- that was like the lowest denominator. I'm like, yeah, the teachers actually smiled and greeted me like at the door. That was something that I had never experienced before. Teachers that were actually excited to teach me. Teachers that sat at the 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 tables in the cafeteria room teaching us table manners and where to put your fork and where to put your fork, I should say. And it was just, a, it was totally different. I went from making D's and F's thinking that I was dumb and stupid and just destined to drop out of high school to making A's and B's by the first nine weeks. And this is what, this wasn't social promotion. This was teachers who were actually committed. I would go over to teachers' house and practice my times tables, practice learning how to read. Hmm. And that's when um, I got thrust, I say, into the school choice movement. I began to take a closer look as I shared my story growing up. Why was my life so different from my brothers and sisters? Why was my life so different from my mom and uncles? You know, and it was because of school choice. I noticed that it was because I had the opportunity to go to some place, go to a school that affirmed me and actually took the time to have a higher standard academically for me. And so um, that's where that's where it all started. And that's what school choice is, you know, and as a beneficiary, um, it's making sure that kids have hope that kids are able to learn. And um, I and I, I can honestly say that I don't think that's happening right now in our current system. Yeah. Well, now you're paying it back and you're involved in um a lot of this, but talk to me a little bit about Black Minds Matter. Yeah, so um, I'd like to say it kind of started with my story, and then it just kind of formalized in something into something uh, major at AFC last summer during the protests with George Floyd. Everyone was looking around trying to figure out: Are we really, you know, combating racism? Are we really taking a stab at racist structures in America? And we were like, uh, Yeah, we do it every day, like. Government schools, the district-run schools, is probably the number one racist structure yeah, you're in like, America. Let me talk to you about what you're. Yeah, talking. like <laughs> right. you want to talk about racism? Like, let's talk about public schools and the teachers' union. A hundred percent. And so that's where Black Minds Matter formed. Like, hey, yes, we care about black men not dying in the street, but there here's a structure that needs attention, and we haven't given it to it. And there are hypocrites around that say, oh, we support 
black people not dying, but you'll kill black minds. And I know that sounds really, but it's true. You know, when you see that black students in America are not graduating from high school at higher rates and they're just pumped into the the prison, you know, they're pumped into prisons and we call it the school to prison pipeline because it's so prevalent. Um, And I like to call it the public school to prison pipeline because we see that all of those statistics are reversed when school choice is in the picture. And so more students who participate in charter and private school programs are graduating at higher rates than their public school counterparts. And as a black woman and as a person who've benefited from school choice, those are the types of statistics that I like to hear when it comes to my community. And I, I don't like hearing that they're not graduating more you know, likely to be identified as special needs. And so that's what Black Minds Matter is, is to bring awareness to all of these hypocrisies in the, in the system writ large and to encourage and, um, for more school choice. Uh, such an important project. I'm so glad you're doing it. Um, I got to imagine, Tommy, that what you have seen in terms of the engagement on this issue overall has been a force multiplier here in the last year as, as for the first time, an awful lot of, you know, people in suburban communities had a, had a disruption, right? I mean, this has been a problem inner city forever, but now with COVID all of a sudden you get people who the schools shut down, their kids are sitting in front of monitors for the first time in their lives. Perhaps they're trying to reevaluate what they thought, of their school system. What an amazing way to help them through that than talking about this issue. That's right. I mean, this was the biggest sea change in our nation's history in terms of K through 12 education. Um, You all of a sudden had, as you said, tens of millions of families who sort of assumed the school that they moved to was fine, right? They either bought that new home, they found the place to move to, to get into that better school district. They all of a sudden got to realize, wait a minute, like there is some pernicious element going on here that our schools have been shut down. We're trying to go to school boards to reopen them. Uh, They started to see the political forces at work. Right. And like you said, I mean, lower income families have been screaming about this for generations. But the teachers unions, the forces that control all of this kind of school system, which is an eight hundred billion dollar enterprise with taxpayer funding, it's about power and control for them. And they know that, well, we don't want to give families options because then they might suddenly <laughs> right. go definitely somewhere going else. somewhere else. Um, and, 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 and COVID COVID exacerbated a lot of this stuff because, you know, and we've said it previously on, on the podcast, but like, you know, if you're upper middle class, you find you're finding a way through this pandemic. You're, you're, you know, you were doing teaching clusters, you know, of neighbors and stuff like that. And, you know, it's just, it was easier for you. It's the lower income students, you know, it's minority students who suffer no the options. most that, yeah. that don't have the options when you have a government monopoly. And and the, the thing that I've always found funny, and, we, and this one of the reasons why we're doing this segment is like, gosh, for the last year, we've been basically begging these government schools to reopen. And it's like, oh, please, please reopen and fail our kids. You know, <laughs> oh, it's just like, and it's like, that's not sustainable. That's not a sustainable model. <laughs> and 90% of private schools were open in September. And the, the remaining like 10 that weren't open was because the government wouldn't let them. And like places like California, they had to petition to like reopen. I mean, so you could just see this immediate disparity of if you were in a government district controlled school in a let's probably more particularly blue state versus a red state like Iowa, Texas, all these states tried to reopen public schools pretty early. 
um, you know, you could just see that educational disparity. And that's where, I mean, people just looked under the hood of the system for the first time. Exactly. And really, it, it, you could just see the sleeping kind of lion that was awakened from so many parents who are now charging at the school boards to try and, you know, make things right, to get their kids back to school, to get learning back on track. And there's a great book um, that I suggest everybody reads, get it on Audible. It's called How the Other Half Learns. And it's about... Uh, it's about a whole bunch of education issues, but in particular, one element they focus on is charter schools and school choice. And in the final chapter, he makes this kind of moral argument for school choice that even the New York Times, your favorite outlet, um, <laughs> the New York Times, their book reviewer, essentially to paraphrase the end of their quote, they said, you know, we're having trouble sleeping at night with this conundrum that is what we've been talking about that we find it wholly uncontroversial when a parent's like, oh, yeah, I moved to the better school district, right? And we're like, oh, that's great. That's a great school. Or, oh, I, I paid for private school tuition. Oh, great school. I love that. You know, great heritage. But as soon as lower income black and brown families start saying, I want to go to a charter school or I want to go to a private school, then it's a political fight. Then we have to right. fight. Then the unions are just trying to smite every candidate that says, wait, why can't we give all parents this kind of freedom. So that's where I think, you know, it's kind of this etch-a-sketch now of the of the politics of this issue that, yeah, like you said, millions of families just didn't really know this was going on or they were comfortable where they were. But now I think this is going to be the biggest election cycle ever for us on this uh, issue. Totally. Mm -hmm. And I want to get into, because you're, the I think, the only group that participates in, in campaigns at the state level on all of this. But uh, first, I, I you know, all of our listeners, I will say all everyone, literally everyone, is for the first time super engaged in school boards, mm -hmm. both from a curriculum standpoint and from just the open the door standpoint. I mean, look, there's a lot of people who spent last year trying to figure out how to educate their kids. Like they became teachers while they were doing their jobs in the same in the same year. Um, and so they're really active, right? But you said something to me, Tommy, that sort of blew my mind. And I and I I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it entirely, but it's if we're focusing exclusively on changing school boards, we're missing the larger picture here. That's right. Yeah, tactically, just think about it. You have, what, 13,000 school districts across the country, right? Two or three different school board elections, in, and they're not, they're not held during like regular election cycles in November. It's like in a random April or something like that. Your school board person is up. Um, and... If you were to put a gun to my head and say, what is the most likely reason we fail to reform our education system in the next two years, right? It's that all of this pent up anger and energy from parents that happened this year, righteously, right? Just to say, why can't our schools be open when this private school down the road is wide open and fine? Why can't we find out what we're getting, our kids are getting taught, right? Why are basic transparency? Why can't we find out how much is going to our school in terms of funding? Why isn't it reach, reaching the classroom? All these things that parents charge after the school boards and they say, I want to win a school board election. I want to change this. And we talk to all sorts of former school board members. They all realize like, oh, that actually doesn't change the system, right? That's only, you might be able to tinker on the margins of some spending decisions or some curriculum decisions, but ultimately all of this really happens at the state level, right? Funding, you name it, is happening and controlled by state laws. So that's why when we pass a private school choice program or we pass a charter school law, this happens at the state level. And my biggest fear, again, going back to how do we fail in the next year, my biggest fear is that all this anger goes towards the school boards. And then in two, year two years time, the teachers union spend 300 million and win back all those school boards. Right. Yeah. And the system just keeps churning on and on. Whereas if let's say 10 percent, 50 percent, maybe 75 uh, percent uh, of the energy is focused on weight. 
I want to make sure my state representative, my state senator, they are going to be a full-fledged school choice candidate. This suddenly makes the school boards almost irrelevant, right? Because if you as a parent have to keep petitioning your school board with like the 99 theses list list of grievances on the wall (laughs) every year at the school board, that's a different system than you going to your principal or your administrator of your local school and saying, I don't like what you guys are teaching. And if you don't fix this, I'm leaving and I'm going to another school tomorrow because I've got fully full funded kind of education for my kid. That's a different dynamic. And this is what dozens of other countries do, right? You look at Sweden, Denmark, Hong Kong, they kind of fully fund the students and not the system. So it's like, hey, you go to whatever school you want to choose, that funding is going to follow your kid. Whereas right now we've got it, you know, 99% of the money goes to one provider in one system. And you better pray that you live in Florida or places that have widespread school choice, if not. So that's the system we're trying to move to. And that's where I'm trying to beat this drum that like, look, school boards, it's great. Get involved. Be aware of what's going on. But boy, make sure your state legislature, your governor, they're passing laws that actually enable you to be in control of the of your education. So I guess my question on that is because, you know, I don't want to discourage people from getting involved locally in in their politics and and working on these these school board issues. Because obviously there's a lot of energy there. And I just wonder, like, how do you tap into that infrastructure to accomplish what you want to do in school choice? Because, I mean, like, you know, I mean, my first job in politics was at Freedom Works. And the thing we always got drilled into our heads was, like, learn from what the other side does. You know, if you read Saul Linsky's Rules for Radicals, what he, you know, what you learn from that is, like, uh, you win by building and you build by winning, right? And so, like, you know, you work on these local issues to build the infrastructure to win the next fight. And you might not win every fight, but the point isn't to always win. The point is to grow the movement as you pursue objectives. So I guess my question back to you is like, how do you take this energy that is directed at, at um, you know, school boards locally and, and help educate these people on what you're describing here, you know, at the state legislature level? Yeah, look, there's a lot of these grassroots parent groups that have been kind of popping up in the past year saying, uh, and previously people who were like, oh, I, I'm opposed to school choice. But then when their schools were shut down, they're like, wait, is there a scholarship program yeah. I could get into? And it's like, <laughs> totally. hey, welcome, yeah. to, welcome to the Reformation. Yeah, well, that's what, and that's one of the problems that I think you guys probably face is like, you know, if, if, if people aren't engaged on the issue, they're like, well, my school's fine. You know, and it's like, right. you know, which has been have, the problem right. forever yeah. until COVID. And then Correct. everybody's like, well, no school's fine. Yeah. Right. Everyone always assumes, oh, it's the other guy's school that's right. bad, right? Or it's the other guy's congressman that's bad. But mm-hmm. my congressman, I like him. That's kind of a dynamic. <laughs> Particularly we people with resources. Right. Exactly. Right? So that's one of the challenges we dealt with. But so I've been talking to some of these groups that are these kind of parent organizing groups that are that are kind of grassroots entities that are fighting against whatever injustice they're seeing in their schools and saying, look, don't forget that one of the most important things you could do in the next 18 months is to look at your state legislator and say, you know, do you support full full fledged school choice? Because, again, that's going to change the system for a decade and decades to come. Once that law is in place, it says, um, hey, uh, well, I don't know where your kids may or may not go to school, but on average in this country, we're spending fifteen thousand four hundred and twenty four dollars per student. Average private school tuition in most states is six to eight thousand dollars. What are we doing here? Right. I mean, right. so <laughs> that's where your state law could say, hey, this 70 percent of the funding that's going to from the state to the local school boards or the local district. Why can't that 70% just follow the student like it did in Florida for Denisha? Because the union can't go to Cabo. That's why. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Denisha, I want to ask I want to ask you about because your story, what's so amazing is your godmother 
being resourceful enough to figure this out, right? Because any of us who have tried to wade through government at any level, I mean, it's a confusing process. You got to be really dogmatic to get to where you're going. She did it. When you're talking to to folks inner city, and you're trying to make them aware of this larger issue. How much of this do you think has a barrier to entry just because of the education process of what you're trying to do? Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is everybody wants to improve their schools, right? It's a bank shot to go state legislature to figure out how to get cash, to get cash, to go to, to a different school. Like, it takes a lot. I mean, people are busy, right? You're trying to make things work. How much do you think just a simple education of people would change the politics of this forever? No, I think it, I think that would be tremendous. I mean, in the in the great state of Florida, where school choice is kind of rampant right now, a lot of parents do know that they have options, right. and now they're kind of taking advantage of it, which is kind of awesome to see now that this new wave of school choice in Florida, Wisconsin, Arizona, that parents are just like just taking advantage and they're picking between private they pick in between charter and they might go back to public like they're just making these choices for their kids and it's great but like a lot of these communities they already see that their schools are low performing that the teachers don't really care about them nine times out of ten they probably went to the same schools and so when they went the schools were failing now they're sending their kids to a failing school and so there's like this oh, nothing is going to change. So what's the use of, you know, banging the school boards down and talking about that, beat that drum, or, you know, going to my state legislator and talking about it. But to now come with this new flag of saying, hey, here's a ticket to a different school, parents are going to hop all over it. And like what Tommy said, the teachers unions are scared out of their wits because now minority families are not only choosing the different schools for their kids, but now you're sparking education entrepreneurship. Now people who have a passion for education, people who like to see the system change, because of all of these new education dollars, they're able to open new learning environments. They're able to open private schools and charter schools and micro schools, pandemic pods. And that's the type of, you know, that those are the things that we want to happen, want to see in the education space, all of this new competition. And with Black Minds Matter, we have the first ever online directory of Black-owned schools. And so this, like, this is the type of Black-owned business we need to be talking about. There awesome. you go. And during this time, if you're going to be talking about anything Black-owned, okay, well, let's make sure we talk about schools because these are charter schools. These are private schools. These are micro schools. And so... You know, the Biden administration, a lot of Democrats are always touting and saying that, hey, we need more black and minority teachers. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember the, yeah. the larger issue coming up with them. Thank you. Like, <laughs> let's empower black teachers. No, no, no. The true empowerment is to actually let them own a school. No and kidding. if we talk about that, you're getting into school choice. And so people wanting to message and talk about school choice when it comes to like this left of center. That's a great messaging tool to say, hey, like. Black-owned schools, that's school choice. And so these are these are just great opportunities for parents, for families, and for education entrepreneurs. Oh, it's so great. And the more work you do, the more it sort of shatters those partisan exactly. lenses of all of this stuff. I, mean, I think one of the most disappointing things throughout the years for me in, in this issue is how partisan it is because it's like the most nonpartisan issue of all time, right? I mean, you look at it and it's 
Of course. I mean, it just sort of makes sense. But yet you have this sort of dogmatic commitment from politicians to teachers unions. Right. I have I have a question on this that I that I'd be very curious. I I want you both to answer it. And and the question is, what's like the number one myth about school choice or education system that you hear from the teachers unions? That is a talking point that is wrong. I'll let you go first, Anisha. Well, I think I'm going to steal yours. <laughs> uh, but for one, I would say, well, I'll keep with, I, I won't steal yours. I think I know what you're going to say. But so. <laughs> You've been working together a while. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the, the pushback in from the teachers union, one of the talking points that they always seem to say, which makes no sense to me and kind of fits on brand with Black Minds Matter, what I'm here talking about, is that school choice is somehow racist. You know, have y'all, it like, yeah. people oh, yeah. say like, oh, it's, it's racist. You know, they're trying to flee the system is it's really ludicrous which is amazingly backwards like yeah. i don't even understand how you land there seriously it's <laughs> like oh school vouchers are like this racist structure that was like okay and then it's like well let's look at the public school system and let's let's <laughs> that feels a little racist yeah, yeah. like right. 15 out of 100 black students nationwide are reading on grade level 13 are doing math on grade level. And then 70% of students who don't graduate from high school will end up in prison. And these are from Harvard, Yale. Like these are stats that have, you know, I mean, Harvard, Yale, you know, well, yeah. It's if, been if vetted. You're, if, you're right, that, if you're into that if kind of thing. If you care of the Ivy Leagues, yeah. <laughs> it's true because it's Yale and Harvard. Um, and so you, and then you look at school choice programs and you see that students who are going, especially Florida was just best state ever. Students who attend private school choice program are more likely to graduate from high school, go to college and graduate from college more than their public school counterparts. And so it's like, we talk about this system of school choices races, but I, like, I don't get it. I'm scratching my head. But your head must explode when somebody says it's like, how is it possibly racist to give somebody a choice? Right. And to, and to take money from school administrators and give it to kids. Yeah. Give it to black kids to go get an education, the best education wherever they can. Like right. I, And simultaneously not racist <laughs> to keep black and brown kids in failing schools right. to perpetually underperform. And like you said, the, the prison pipeline. Right. I mean, that's that there's stats, right? Yeah. Those are real life things that's not this isn't some hypothetical debate yeah it's like we're watching it play out in real time yeah uh, this uh maybe a couple weeks ago baltimore 41 percent of baltimore students graduated with a below 1.0 gpa jeez like imagine if all of those students had a choice to go to a different school like just imagine imagine any other part of our government functioning that way and it right. not being a national emergency yeah, it, it, like it's not something you talk about all the time. Right. Like you're uh, an entire population, 41%, is that what you 41, said? 41, below a 1.0. Holy cats. GPA. I mean, Baltimore is not a small place. Yeah. Uh, well, think of, I mean, you you guys talk national security from time to time. You want to give the broccoli, as you say, in, in yeah. these <laughs> discussions. You know, there was this famous report that came out in the Reagan administration that a lot of people harken back to in 1983 that said, you know, if a foreign country, and this was in 1983, much different scenario than where we are now, but in 1983, if a foreign country had imposed our system of education onto our students, we would view it as an act of war, right? <laughs> right. That's what, but it's just a slower moving, 
you know, crisis over 15 years that by the time you graduate, it's like, oh, crap, I had a really bad education. And that was my one shot at an education. Or you have devastation across cities for generations. And it's like, well, it's slower moving. It's less sexy. We're not going to really go after it. It, The politics are also really pervasive, right? Because you've got populations that are affected more than anyone that are also predominantly Democrat. And the Democrat ideology has somehow encompassed this set of issues without actually having to explain any of it, right? So, So it's like you have to break through a partisan commitment in order to sort of explain the issue. And then, but like what you do, what you all do on a day-to-day basis doing that, I think it has it, perhaps the most profound change in American politics possible. Because if you break through that wall, all of a sudden people are open to all sorts of possibilities. People are getting better education. People are having more opportunities. And all of a sudden that sort of dogmatic way of viewing the world falls, falls away. Right. I mean, this really is about ending poverty, right? Like if you were able to really fix our K through 12 education system, all the stats that Denisha was talking about, prison, welfare, you name it. I mean, these start to go away after, you know, 10 plus years if you actually had a thriving K through 12 enterprise. And I look, you know, we talk about like, well, Democrats don't support it. That's one myth that I, you know, gets thrown around. It's like, actually, no, I'm going to read right from our poll that um, 70 percent of Democrats support this. It's just the elites don't, right? right? The people in power, the people who, by and large, I look at Kamala Harris, stepchildren went to private schools. Nancy Pelosi, kids went to private schools. Joe Biden, kids went to private schools. But then they oppose school choice for <laughs> lower income children that aren't rich, I guess, right? So, And they don't have to talk about this in their primaries. No, no. Right? Nobody not. brings this up. No, and I think that's where the teachers union element comes in and people miss this. So we were uh, the largest national school, school choice group raising 20 million last year how much do you think the teachers unions brought in in revenue give us don't give like some wild number but like your realistic estimate of what the two national unions brought in i mean i wouldn't even know where to begin but it's got to be 100 million yeah 100 million three billion. Oh, get out of here so yeah. 150, Rebuilt, 150 times the size of what we brought in to where uh hundreds of millions of it going at least from the government disclosures to political causes political organizations throughout the country I mean, three which, billion and 99% yeah. of that on their actual hard kind of election spending going to Democrats and then some Republicans in the states that are totally tied in with that them. is so, more money than was spent in the presidential election. That is shocking. That is genuinely shocking. We're remember. up against a Goliath. Oh, right. <laughs> cats. So it's that's perpetually where, funded, too. Right? Correct. And this is where because, you know, it's also a misnomer. They're not the teachers unions, technically. I mean, they organize and collect dues out of the paychecks of janitors, graduate students. I mean, anybody who's basically an employee in school, because for them, look, if they can get a thousand dollar, you know, average check can be a few hundred to a thousand overall from teachers, from, you know, hardworking school educators. The more money they bring in, the more it funds their political causes. And this is why there is a huge Supreme Court uh, case that got resolved, I think it was 2018, I'm forgetting the years, the Janus case where it's like, look, yeah. you can't forcibly compel people to fund political causes and force uh, speech, essentially. And the union argument, if you go to like their lawyers, when he talked about it, they're like, well, isn't all union spending political because you're trying to influence a political system? I mean, they dodged around it and they were like, well... <laughs> Yes, there are important representation activities we need to do. I mean, so it's like they're collecting money from teachers, 
They're then funding politicians who agree with them. They then are negotiating with those said politicians. Yeah, they're like, they're the like, judge, judge, you don't yeah. understand. We're running a protection racket. Right. Right. <laughs> and then, and then You're of course, screwing it up. Like what happened this year with schools locked down, yeah, right? They CDC. put this leverage into the CDC. They oh, that was the, that was one of my favorites, by the way. Yeah. The CDC yeah. comes out and they're like, oh yeah, it should be fine with schools. And the teachers union goes in, actively says that they went and lobbied CDC. And like three days later, they're like, well, we're not sure we're going to come back. Right. Right. Yep, and so that, they got, what, $197 billion from the feds last year to mm-hmm. help reopen schools, sanitize. Yeah, where the hell it, did that go? Oh, every every state education agency is coming to us saying, how do we spend this money? We're like, it's it's all tied up in with federal strings, and it's going to the system. So which if you had taken that same money and given it to every parent, rich or poor in this country, to spend per kid, that would have been a $3,300 check you could have used to Unbelievable. go to a private school, right? So. And so that's where there's kind of just this power dynamic that we are trying to take down to say, look, if you can put that funding and the control of your kids' education dollars into your hands rather than just letting the unions run run amok with it, the system changes. I mean, that's what we're really fighting against. Yeah, we really got to demand it. Tell us a little bit about, because you're, you're the only organization that is running campaigns, right? Which also surprised me when I heard that because, look, this is... This is a really important issue. I would have figured that you'd have some competition in that space, particularly now that I know there's $3 billion up against you. Um, Talk to us about a typical legislative campaign. Like, how do you get involved? What do you do? Yeah, we typically, uh, and we're going to be changing some of this because we want to get a lot more aggressive because we're like, the time is now to really win on this issue, to get parents on our side. Um, Typically, what we do is like we give out a survey, right, saying, hey, where do you stand on these issues? So that gives us some landscape and gives us an, a determination of where we want to invest either in independent expenditures and whatnot and through whatever appropriate legal channels to get involved in a race. And quite often, we are usually the biggest kind of state legislative political spender outside of, let's say, a, an official party entity. Um, there's groups like AFP and some others that have, they do some of this work, too. But mm-hmm. we are really I mean, we're single issue. We're only focused on school choice. And so, yeah, we got involved in 396 legis- uh, legislative elections last year won 336 of them. This is why the Wall Street Journal, I mean, they've written, you know, when Secretary DeVos, our former chairwoman, was getting confirmed, it's like, look, this is like the most effective education reform right. group in the country because if you're changing laws, you're changing lives. It's like one of our mottos, right? Where all of a sudden, if we can go into 500 races next year, 1,000 races, redistricting is a whole part of this equation too, that you might have enduring school choice majorities in 40 plus states all of a sudden that now parents are in control of their education dollars. I mean, this is where, again, back to that notion of ending poverty and all these things. Um, Denisha talked about Baltimore. Um, one of the quotes that I think your listeners should just kind of commit to memory, because uh, this really changed some of my thinking about the urgency of this crisis. Um, there was a report in 2017 that came out um, kind of surveying, hey, how many students are passing kind of you know a state exit exam of can you graduate? Can you pass on this? Um, how many of the 3,800 students that took this test from in high school, give me a percentage what you think uh, of students that actually passed this test. What would you, what would you guess? Shoot. I have no idea. I mean, I, at this point, all of your numbers have blown my mind. So I'd like, rather <laughs> than just, just humiliate myself, I'm just going to ask you the question. <laughs> yeah, re- reasonable guess. I mean, most people might guess, I usually hear like, you know, 20%. That'd be horrifying. Right I was going to say 40 and I okay, 40. feel like it's going to be really bad. Josh? Yeah, well, 35. 35. So it was 13. What? 13%. But it wasn't percent. 
13. 13 students. 13 students. 3,800. You're kidding me. So if you guys know the, the, he now passed away, the columnist Walter Williams, you know, he read this report and this is the quote that sticks with me and I might get emotional saying it, but this is what kind of inspired in some ways this Black Minds Matter project that Denisha, she wrote about in this initial op-ed saying like, why aren't we focusing on the biggest, I mean, we've been developing these straw men over the past year about race issues and whatever we want to tackle, but like the most important one here is K through 12 education. And Walter Williams wrote in his column after reading that report, if you were the grand wizard of the KKK, could you design a better system at disenfranchising black students than the Baltimore public school system? Oh my gosh. That is, oof, you're right. I mean, that is what we're talking about here, right? And for some reason, the unions and the politicians they control, they're, they're perfectly fine with that. And they're perfectly fine funding because one of the big myths is always like, it takes away funding from public schools that are chronically underfunded. Baltimore schools are getting like 19,000 a kid, right, Denisha? 1.0 GPAs. Yeah. 41%. Yep. I mean, the fact that there's a dollar ad allocated to anybody with that kind of record, you know, I mean, I don't even understand how you answer the question. It'd be like, the, it'd be like the Yankees losing 100 games every year. <laughs> Give them more money. Yep. Yeah, just throw more money at it. I'm sure that management is, I mean, it's just so mind-blowing. The fact that this isn't a national outrage. That everyone isn't engaged in this. I can't believe there's a single topic of conversation that we're talking about at the national level that this doesn't supersede. You know, they're having a conversation on Capitol Hill this week about, you know, this, what, trillion dollar infrastructure package? It'd save them a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You know, let's talk mm -hmm. about school choice. Yeah. And then you have the conversation that's happening with CRT. And you're like, wait, you want to try to teach something else in schools? Like, can we teach reading? Can we teach math? Can we at least teach what we were you were designed to teach? Right. You know, like, yeah. are you going to put something else in a curriculum? Really? Okay. Yeah, because you had such good luck teaching. I mean, I right. guess maybe that's the one thing we've got going for us is that they have no luck teaching anybody, anybody anything anyway. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's the cynical take that yeah. if they're teaching things you you as a parent may not like, well, they're probably not teaching Don't you worry, they well can't anyways, get so. they can't get it through. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a well done demonstrated record of failure true oh my gosh well so how do our listeners help you guys what do they do i mean first and foremost they can go to our website they can text fund my child now to 52886 you know we really need to build up this kind of movement right a parent army that revolts against this current system and asks for real changes for their kids because we do these studies every couple years of like in private schools right now, there are 1.2 million just empty seats that could be filled tomorrow if a kid had a scholarship to go there, right? So Wait, can you say that again? 1.2 million empty seats in private schools, mostly inner city Catholic schools and a lot of Christian schools that they could be filled tomorrow, but if they don't get funding or they don't get a kid paying tuition or their scholarships, they're just going to sit empty. So you've got all wow. these marginal seats that you can get a million kids overnight in new schools, let alone expanding that to you know create new opportunities like Denisha said this big new movement this year called micro schools right where parents can get together either in a right. gym or a facility and like kind of just start a homeschool which is kind of one new thing we're exploring with uh getting more teachers onto our side because all right let's say you are a public school teacher right they're also being super disenfranchised by the unions because if you're a public school teacher and you're looking across your classroom going wait a minute Every kid in this classroom, let's say there's 20 of them getting 150000 or $15,000 per kid per year. Like, that money's not going to yeah, my, where is right, that, that going? money going, right? 
Whereas in a school choice system, you can be a public school teacher, get them, open a micro school, have 10 kids and you're making $150,000. Right. In let's, let's, let's make some entrepreneurs, Exactly. you know, there you go. So all of a sudden when you open that system up, I mean, you're going to just see a boom in education and then maybe we can get out of, you know, 30th place in the international kind that's of a really that's a in, really you know, olympics i know we're in the olympics we're competing against other countries we're ranked like 37th in math right now i mean and we're spending twice as much as kind of the the biggest you know competitors that we've got in education i mean this is where it's like if you can create a more entrepreneurial open bottom-up parent-driven family marketplace you know education changes overnight oh, no question i mean it reminds me a little bit of what happens when you have uh, nationalized healthcare in this in socialized countries that all of a sudden every doctor becomes an entrepreneur right <laughs> they open their own their own practice and, and treat specialties completely separately from that i mean that's what happens when government fails you know and it, i have not heard that expressed that way that if you could get teachers to look at their profession differently that's right perhaps through an entrepreneurial lens then you're not only helping the kids you're helping the teacher because mm-hmm. that's to the unions right they're also they're trying to protect bad teachers right they never want to get a teacher yeah. fired but then they're also stifling any great teacher who's like hey i want to kind of do my my own thing or nope you got to be within the system <laughs> i mean this is why the average teacher is gone in four years right that, that's i think the the attrition rate i mean every teacher is like the only way i can get paid more is to go be an administrator i'd, I'd rather be a great teacher and make more money i mean this is where the new system that we're trying to envision is just so much more uplifting, right? So much more promising versus, hey, the DMV is just going to be running 88% of schools right now yeah. and enjoy that. The DM, that's, a, <laughs> that's pretty good. So my last question, Denisha, where do you think we are? Are we winning this fight? I think we are. I think COVID has really, well, between COVID and the teachers union, this past year has been so great for the school choice movement. A lot of parents have been asking questions and that's probably the best thing that they can do. They're looking at the system and they're saying, why is my kid just staring at a computer? Why is the teacher yelling at them? Why does this feel like daycare? Uh, why can't I go to a school that's open? Like they've been asking all of these great questions and lawmakers too have taken a deeper look at, you know, their, their policy. I've been on an interview with Tim Scott and uh, Congressman, yeah, awesome. uh, he is awesome, <laughs> Byron Donalds. And so just across the board, a lot of politicians are also like, how can we continue to try to empower parents um, at the state, local, federal level? And so I think we've, I think we, we are on the winning side and we've done, we've done a lot in this past year to, to move the needle forward. That's great. One more time, how everybody can help. Uh, visit federationforchildren.org, text fund my child now to 52886. Uh, join the parent army. We started last year, I mean, to give a bit of context on the boom that we saw in parent interest. You know, we were running marketing campaigns, trying to get parents involved in things. We probably had 70,000 parents in our database start of last year. Right now it's at about 988,000. I mean, wow. so there is just That's a, a great- tidal wave of interest that if we can capitalize upon this in the next year or two. Boy, we could change the system for decades. And um, again, kind of one of the, we were talking pre-show about like McKinsey studies and some of these things like, uh, they were studying the school system last year and they're like, oh my gosh, like 3 million kids have just disappeared from the public school system. You know, if I were a savvy hedge fund investor and said, well, if we don't get this changed, I mean, where's this going to go in 10 years? We're, as Denisha said, if 70% of dropouts go to prison, I mean, you're going to be doubling the prison population in 10 years, potentially. I mean, 
prison infrastructure companies are probably going to be a bull market right now. I mean, that's the seriousness of all the stuff we're doing. So that is the like, saddest financial news I've ever heard. Yeah. Now, and this is exactly, <laughs> yeah. that's actually how they kind of, cons- you know, city planners and whatnot mm-hmm. actually construct these things. They look at third rate Jeez. literacy levels, right? If you're like Baltimore, or any of these systems, it's like, well, we know where this is going in yep. about 15 years. This yep. is like gold standard research studies you can just find on this yep. stuff. So, I say that like <laughs> if I failed the third grade twice because of reading, like I was destined to go to prison. Like, But it's not an understatement. Like that is no. literally the truth because of how prison bits are designed. Wow. Well, listen, you guys are really impressive. I love this. This has been terrific. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to ask you three questions that we always ask all of our guests. Okay. We were going to save you from this part, but you're both such compelling personalities. I can't stop it. And we got, (laughs) Oh yeah, we got, we got it. So the first question, if you had your last meal on earth, if you could plan it, what would it be? Denisha? Okay. Well, my favorite (laughs) meal, which I I would have to be my dying meal, toast, some jam, cup of tea and some fruit. Oh, really? It's a very English answer. I know. I, I wow. didn't expect the toast and tea. Okay. Weren't you just reading like the Bridgerton I series or whatever? Bridgerton. <laughs> I am honing my Bridgerton. You, you, she's uh, got a great in English accent too. So say your last meal again, but in your English accent. Right, so I'll have some toast and tea and a little little biscuit. Maybe <laughs> some crumpets. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I like it. Okay. Oh, All so, right. Uh, I moved to Texas, but uh, used to live in kind of DC area. You know, I got it. The first thing that popped to my mind when you said that is like, did you guys ever been to like Goody's Pizza in Arlington? Like back in the day when it was like, you know, two hour lines out front of this little shack. For whatever reason, that came to mind. I probably normally would have said ribeye and sweet potatoes or something. You want that pizza. That pizza sounds really Especially good. Especially because that's like my final meal, right? Death yeah. Yeah. or, you know, death row or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the last one. You don't have to worry about calories. You don't have to worry about anything else. Yeah, I'm going pizza. Probably. Okay. All right. All right. Second question. If you never got into this, if you weren't dedicating your life, and I know it's really difficult for you to sort of conceptualize because you've had such a personal experience, Tanisha, but I'm going to start with you, uh, Tommy. If you never got into this, what would you be doing with your life? So if we were backing up like, let's say six or seven years, I probably would have stuck with just kind of traditional political campaign stuff. If we were backing up like 15 years right before I went to college, I was very seriously considering, uh, and now that we're in the Olympic season, this is timely. Um, I was considering kind of an Olympic career in trap shooting. That really? my sport trap in high school. Wow. See, this um, is why we ask these questions. Yeah. Because that's, that's fascinating. But the best part is, so speaking of which, America is just crushing it in the, the medal count right now for skeet. Shooting, uh, yeah. Trap shooting starts, I think, tonight, Wednesday, whenever we're recording this. I don't know when this goes out. But uh, we've got, I think, three golds and a silver already in shooting. Uh, and the, here's the inspiring part about shooting is that I could always, and you guys too, could always go back to it and compete for gold later on. Because I think the guy that got silver in the men's skeet was like 57 years old. So, I mean, you can <laughs> nice. be obese and just all these yeah. things, but you can shoot a gun really quick. Yeah. And Gol- golf, and, golf and skeet shooting. That's shooter. right, exactly. <laughs> so, I think I found a new hobby. Uh, that's right. Right. Can I enter? There's a women's division. Denise, are you going to be skeet shooter too, or what are you going to do? I, if if school choice wasn't my, you know, calling, I'd say dentistry. Is that right? Yep, I wanted to be an orthodontist. And so, teeth is kind of my thing. You're into teeth. Yeah. I love it. Wow. Okay. That was very revealing. Right? I didn't know that, Denise. Okay. Yeah. See, look at where well, I'm already helping colleagues think through these things together. Your graduate degree was social work. Social work. work yeah. I don't recommend it. 
for all the listeners to not. I dated a social worker once. It was not a good deal. It was not a good deal. All right. So final question in this, I'm going to explain this one a little bit. So it's what motivates you more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? When you think about it, the agony of defeat figure, the person who's motivated more than any person on the face of the planet by the agony of defeat is Michael Jordan, right? (laughs) This is the guy who like literally doesn't even like winning. It's like the idea that somebody could beat him just crushes his soul, right? And that's what motivates him entirely. Thrill of victory, obvious, you know, it's like, Sunny optimist, you see things for, for an accomplishment, you go out and you try to get it. Two very different ways, no right answer. Tommy, what, what's, your, what's yours? Yeah, so I would say on like the non-important stuff, like my wife and I, we just did like, uh, we're having our first kid in September. Oh, congratulations. We did like a baby bash. We're like, we don't want to do a boring baby show. Let's have it fun. Like we had all these like little competitions, little BB gun shooting things in the backyard and flip cup. And it was like the fun stuff, like the thrill of victories, the, the motivator, but the important stuff like our work, it's like the agony of defeat of just knowing like every year, unless we were massively successful and we don't get beaten. I mean, that's what kind of, I think drives me every single day yeah. is thinking about those kids where it's like, boy, if we didn't help that graduating class this year, yeah. come yeah. May and 41% June. 41% in yeah. Baltimore. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. I mean, so that's yeah. where the, the agony and that kind of, I think, it's almost like pessimism, right? Is like just driving the the daily grind yeah. on, on yeah. the important stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think that we have such, you know, high, we have such big grounds to fill and so many kids that are dependent on us. And so it's like, yeah, the agony of defeat definitely drives, definitely yeah. drives me. I like that. Makes perfect sense yeah. if you think about it. Listen, you guys are great. I can't thank you enough for being here in studio and sharing your stories telling us how we can help. We're going to stay on this issue. Incredibly important. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Welcome to the fight. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, look, two outstanding individuals. I can't tell you how wonderful it was to sit down with them in studio and have a conversation that taught me so much. Denisha was incredible, and her story is incredible. Real-life experience that really, I think, paints a picture for why this is such an important issue. Yeah, and you know, the the statistics that she mentioned, particularly Baltimore public schools, mm-hmm. just so sad. Terrible. Terrible. And, and, and the idea that we're all ramped up in fighting these school boards right now, which is important, and we need to do that. But the point that Tommy was making about, you know, you, you wouldn't actually have to fight traditional Democratic strongholds if you had school choice and the dollars followed the kids. That's what, that's it. That's it. That was the nail on the head. Yeah. It is fundamentally rethinking the approach in the sense that why is the money not by child instead by school? It's almost like set up to fail. Right. right. And so instead of constantly trying to win favor in a system that's set up uh, to do poorly, right. like let's, let's break a broken system that's a monopoly over our children's education and have an alternative. We that's could run these right. That's right. multi-million dollar campaigns to try to flip a school board and then the school then the unions come <clears> in and, and take it right back. Right. Or And they're both important. They're both important. Both important. But I think this point was really crystallized for me is that we also if we're pushing this overarching school choice issue, you, it's a long-term win. Yeah. It's not a cyclical battle. Right. It's and it's what the left has done better than the right, I think, in a lot of areas, which is 
like change the structure itself. And like, that's what we got to do with an issue like school choice. And that's the thing. Now's the time. Now's the time. Given the whole COVID situation, now's the time. It's time for school choice. So I loved it. Great deep dive. Great episode, gentlemen. Another banger. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.